0: This is Song, and this is Sarah, and you're listening to Effing Ethical, a podcast about impactful consumption. Well, welcome back. Good to see you, hear from you, hear you again, Sarah. (laughs) I know one of these days, both
1: of our internets are going to be strong enough to see each other while we do this. Today is not that day. (laughs) Today is not that day. I think that just like the internet as though it's like one monolithic thing is just really tired from all of the zoom activity and streaming that it's just like been giving up like the number like, like of- <laughs> me too girl me too <laughs> like we're done um okay so where do we start how like what are supply chains
0: Gosh, what are supply chains indeed? It's kind of a basic definition of supply chains are that they're the, the processes and the systems, right, that take raw materials and then make them into final products and then into the hands of the consumer. Or in other words, every product that we as consumers purchase, whether it's, you know, our strawberries or, you know, microphone converter cables, (laughs) requires multiple supply chains. Um, And these multiple supply chains are of goods. You know, they could be of finances, they can be of processes, and they can be of information. And so... As you mentioned, Sarah, last week, there are less chains and more a crazy, complicated web of processes and goods and um, and information and things.
1: And they're not, I think like you just said, they're not like distinct chains. It's not like this thing moves to this one place and then like moves along. It's very interconnected. And there's a whole bunch of reasons, which we don't even have time to get into because it's like not really the point, but there's it it might not seem efficient to you um as a consumer but what i think has really been highlighted in this like time of covid is how the fact that they weren't necessarily very efficient but very much you know almost every supply chain in the world relies on china in some way shape or form or you know is you know, was connected to somewhere in the world where there's been a COVID outbreak, although like now that place is the US. Um, but because of those things, mm-hmm. we're sort of starting to understand, oh my gosh, it slowed everything down. Right. Um, because it's just so interconnected. And it right. it it really is like this web. I think I'm gonna just keep calling it that. Like they're not supply yeah, chains, let's they're call supply, it webs. supply <laughs>
0: webs. I feel like we should just title this episode supply webs. <laughs> yeah. I like that's that. That's so much better. But to that point, I mean, I don't think they were always so complicated. They've become complicated over time for a number of reasons. But I feel like the one that comes to mind immediately uh, are the impact of governmental and intergovernmental policies when tr- free trade agreements started to emerge. Um, the idea of control over uh, your supply chains—it was all traded in for greater flexibility and places to look for. Um, look for and take advantage of the labor arbitrage that has happened, right? Like, yeah, corporations were now able to look kind of all over the world to find the cheapest source of labor. Um, And through that, these complicated systems have started to emerge. Um, And as we sort of touched on last week about how it's complete race to the bottom, looking for the lowest cost, reducing costs in every place possible, companies and brands have exchanged um, the ability to have sight into their supply webs for the ability to cut costs.
1: Yeah. And I, so, you know, what really is, is kind of the focus of our conversation here. And um, I don't think that I articulated it in the first episode, but Like the thing that makes me so mad, and I know this makes you mad too, is when there is some sort of like label or standard that consumers use to like, you know, usually it's connected to supply chain to understand where the ingredients or the product came from that makes them feel good about buying that product because it should, right? Everything got messy Um, and people wanted to know that, you know, that their tuna was dolphin free or, you know, whatever. But I hate it because it is such a narrow designation and doesn't even begin to identify what's actually happening on the ground or like what the real risks and impacts to, you know, especially like local communities where these products are mined, produced, um, processed, you know, in factories. Um, It like doesn't even begin to address that, right? It kind of scratches the surface. and right. It's it's hard because that's really it's like very deceiving to to consumers, but like you consumers want to buy things that make them feel good about what they're consuming for the most part. That's like why all these things exist, right? Right. Um and one of the I mean, one of the biggest pieces of this that's just really hard and this spreads to areas other than just supply chain, but it really is clear in the supply chain, is that in those efforts to one make it clear to consumers, but um, also for companies to be able to kind of like you know label themselves or commit to something. Um, there are so many different labels and so many <laughs> different standards. And okay, so I I pulled up my, this new sunblock that I got because Ooh. song I wanted you I wanted to know if you knew any of these things because it was just so wild. Okay, so the first thing it says on it is farm to face do you know what that is
0: i have absolutely no idea
1: okay um the next one is plant protection and these are like 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 there's like a little r next to them so these are like registered trademarks
0: (laughs) i've literally never heard of any of those things
1: um okay uh cruelty free it's like a little more common um reef friendly it's like i mean that one's a little bit more common okay um uh, anyways I just thought that those first two farm to face and plant protection both like registered trademarks I honestly didn't even look it up because because yeah. I was like what does this even mean <laughs>
0: <laughs> they make me happy to hear out loud
1: but I feel like that just like was a good illustration of this like complicated thing to kind of try to figure out um I also, you know, identified this website that has um, an index of like a bunch of mm-hmm. what they're calling eco labels. It's the mm-hmm. eco label There are 140 labels on there. Gee. Um, granted, a lot of them are like country specific, right? You would yeah. expect, um, you know, European countries to, ha- you know, maybe have different ones, but still like 140 is pretty wild. And yeah, like for one thing, it's not, start? yeah, like exactly, where do you even start? Like, how can you say like, oh, I feel really good about um about this or that? So I feel like maybe something good to do because we do have some, you know, like on the ground um experience with some of these is to maybe just talk about them briefly. I know one that came up in a class that we all had <laughs> last year in our first year at SOM is fair trade.
0: Love starting there because it's one that is fairly ubiquitous. I think it's on the minds of folks. So Sarah, would you like to talk about what fair trade is? (laughs) Test time.
1: I mean, so the general idea is it's usually used around things like coffee. It's really, really common in the coffee industry. And the point is, are the producers of those coffee, of that coffee, so, you know, tends to be smaller like farmers, um, we call them smallholder farmers. So, like, the amount of land they have is like a small amount of land, or it might be like a farmer cooperative. Are they receiving a fair wage or like a fair price for that um, coffee?
0: What could be wrong and about that? Yeah, right. <laughs> it All great, good. So, right? Sounds great. <laughs> However, the thing about certifications and laws and policies and all of the things that are intended to give more information and to help someone be more informed and to make things better are sometimes made without thinking through what all of the implications will be further down the line, further down or upstream, I guess, of supply chains or supply webs, as we are calling them today. One of the critiques of fair trade was that it had the unintended consequences of actually because of um, less demand for fair trade, because it does tend to be more expensive, it actually cost farmers more. They weren't able to get as much as they were for non-fair trade. And so it had unintended consequences around the, the actual meaning for the people who are supposed to be benefiting. From this certification.
1: Yeah. Um, Not to sort of get into this totally different topic, but some of the um, some of the problems with it are actually very similar to how uh, minimum wage is implemented across states in the U.S. So it's not to say that a minimum wage is wrong or that it's high enough or like any, you know, should about it. But if it's not you know, evenly set across the country, right? If there is some sort of opportunity to get cheaper labor elsewhere, or if it's set at a higher point where say a smaller business owner can't afford to pay as many people, people might end up losing their jobs. So there's just sort of this complicated process that means that if it's not implemented well or implemented broadly, and if there's not enough like market demand, like you said, it can actually like cause harm um, and even, like you said, like cost um, some of the farmers money. It doesn't mean it it does, right? It's kind of the same as the minimum wage. It doesn't mean that this is always happening. It means that this is like kind of one of the problems with it. It's really about the implementation.
0: Um, Sarah, how do you feel about the roundtable on sustainable palm oil? Oh, my gosh. This is my favorite. So if you know me in
1: person, you've probably heard me talk about this. So palm oil is like, one, if you're someone who maybe was attracted to this podcast because you thought we were going to talk about sustainability, you probably have heard about palm oil or are trying to stay away from it or, you know, specifically buy products that say palm oil free, Um, which is great. This is like not to say that you should consume palm oil or you shouldn't consume palm oil or you should buy things that have it in or not. It's more just about like the perception of palm oil. Um so some misconceptions about palm oil if you care about it for like environmental reasons it's probably because you have this image of an orangutan in like Borneo dying or having their like home burned up because they're clearing rainforest in order to plant palm oil trees um which is horrible like that's a horrible image that's like a real thing that's happening all bad. So the round table on sustainable palm oil was specifically like put together to look at how palm oil was being produced um, mostly in Indonesia, but like in Southeast Asia. And it's done in these like massive plantations. They do clear forest, um, which is, you know, horrible. Um, They also employ like a ton of people. They also like buy Palm oil from smallholder farmers. So they might have their own plantation, but then they're buying from farmers like from the area. So it's already like really complicated to say like what is good or what is bad within palm oil in Southeast Asia and especially Indonesia. Um, but and here's kind of the the misconception about it: so the the plant that produces palm oil is native to sub-saharan africa specifically to west africa and palm oil has been used as like a cooking oil in food like forever like that is a very traditional way of cooking um it adds like a lot of flavor to food the 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 sort of the sustainability trend is like no palm oil but you have people who eat it in their local cuisine and it's you know very traditional and totally fine and you also have people who are producing it as sustainably as possible. Like, I'm not going to argue that, again that there's like a perfect way of doing it, but that's kind of what the point of this certification, which comes from the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, comes from is like, you know, we're really trying. Like, we're not cutting down forests. We're not taking up habitat of endangered species. We're paying our workers well. Like, it really covers like a wide variety of topics. And if your palm oil is coming from sub-Saharan Africa, it's far more likely that the palms are native. You know, granted, they're being um farmed, you know, in the way that we do farming now. It's not like you're going out and you know, collecting them from wild trees, but it's native. It doesn't have the same like environmental degradation. Um, so I feel like this is just a really good example of like, it's so easy to just say like, don't consume anything with palm oil. Um, and I'm not a, a chemist, but I, I, I understand that there are some qualities of palm oil that make it really good for putting in processed foods or putting in um, cosmetics. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, other options include Purchasing palm oil that has this certification, purchasing palm oil that's organic, which is it's really hard to grow organic palm oil. And so if they are, it's probably being done in an otherwise like very sustainable way.
0: That's so fascinating. And uh, there are a few points that you made that I just wanted to touch on. The first being I think we, as consumers, we just sometimes just want this kind of quick hand, like palm oil, bad, and and that's it. And I think it's so easy to want to gravitate towards those things without, you know, thinking further and thinking deeper about the implications of disrupting supply chains. But I hope that you know this is it's it's more of a muscle that once we start to exercise and asking questions, like it, it will become easier with time. I think also, you know, your point about the fact that in different parts of the world, palm oil is such an essential part of their culture and their cooking. And I think it's really important that we don't impose assumptions about something because of the movements that were created within our own cultures um, about a certain product or about, about anything to other people or around the globe. Now more than ever, this whole idea that there is a quote-unquote developing world and quote-unquote like underdeveloped world, like it's just all a farce of anything. I mean, look at us in the United States. Our systems were so broken that no one welcomes us anymore. We're we're at a moment of reckoning where we as a nation, right, have to re-examine some of these assumptions that we impose even through like our ideas about sustainability and 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 whatnot.
1: yeah, um, and just your kind of explanation of that or like great summary of the the rambling that I did, but brought up a point that we kind of have discussed before in brainstorming about this podcast and I think is really important here, and that is this idea of what is ethical enough and who gets to decide that. so, you know, we as consumers, we do have a lot of power mm-hmm. and that's really important. But who are we to say that the experience of a certain community is is good or bad, right? And, yeah. and the way we find that out, you know, what is harmful, like what is harmful to a community is right. through really good stakeholder engagement. Like when you're looking at your supply chain or, right. or, or your know, supply web, if you're a business owner, do you understand where all of your products are coming from? Do you understand what the conditions in the factories are? Do those factories have mechanisms in place to where if there are grievances amongst the workers, which like, let's be real in a factory, there probably are. I mean, hello, in the US, there are factories where people aren't being provided with appropriate personal protective equipment to protect themselves against covid and like again that's in the US where we have much stricter laws and policies that do protect workers and so how do you know what those experiences of the many probably vulnerable communities within your supply chain how do you know what those are and that's really active engagement on your part as as a company, you know, the person at the end of that supply chain.
0: Sarah, you make a really, really good point about um, just the level of engagement it takes from corporations and brands, the ones holding the vast majority of the power. You know, to your point about worker grievance mechanisms, I think it's almost impossible for larger corporations with complex supply webs to have oversight and visibility into the majority of their supply chains because it is—it's just there's too much and it's—it's it's just too costly. And in addition to the traditional methods that um, companies use to have oversight, whether it's through audits or risk assessments or whatnot, um, I think it's really, really important to. Uh, And something for you all to look out for and for us to push corporations for is to make sure that there are collective bargaining agreements that are available for folks uh, who are working down the supply chains. Because it's one thing for there to be policies for companies to say, you know, if you're contracting with us, you must have, you know, grievance mechanisms in place. You must not have human rights violations, et cetera. And it's a whole nother thing to actually make sure that those things are implemented on the ground. The only people who know the human rights violations that are happening right, are the people who are in it themselves. And if they don't have the right to band together and to organize and to fight for their own rights, it's almost impossible for that to be found out by um, people further down the supply chain. So that's such an important piece of of accountability measures that we don't really talk about, but I just wanted to to flag that. (laughs) Yeah, I I totally
1: agree and something that that reminded me of is we're having these conversations cuz we're trying to pull out some similarities of like how do you determine if a company is acting ethically? Like what are those avenues? What are the right questions to ask? And I think one of those questions that you as a consumer can ask or like you know, pay attention to is how does a company respond to accountability mechanisms? So do they shut down and ignore the requests by unions? Do they shut down and ignore problems that are brought up by like local nonprofits? I think all of that kind of how they're engaging with civil society is very telling about kind of how seriously a company takes this and like where their priorities are. I, I wouldn't say that that like stands in place of just clearly having good practices, but when we talk about this continuum of how well you act and how well you can act under capitalism, how you respond to those accountability mechanisms, I think is just a sign of kind of, you know, what your company's priorities are.
0: There are so many different types of practices that different consumers care about, that different companies care about. We talked about last week, there are companies who excel in, um, environmental sustainability and you know gender parity and things like that, but they might be racist organizations. There are just so many different axes where companies have the opportunity to do well um, or to do poorly, and it's and it's less about how much of that they have perfectly executed as whenever something new is brought to them by people who are paying attention, consumers, investors, right? Like just how. Actually, ready and willing to engage and to make themselves better, they are. That ties in actually to um, a point that I wanted to make around cancel culture, actually, because when we're all sitting at home <laughs> and we are hypersensitive and hyper aware of um, everything all of a sudden, I think we have this tendency to want justice immediately. Yes, it's absolutely necessary. Calling companies out is absolutely needed as a tool when other mechanisms and other forms of redress have been tried, and and or there is this huge imbalance of power, um, and companies aren't listening, right? But it sometimes can be more harmful than um, than helpful. And there's this actually really powerful piece by Adrienne Marie Brown. It's called On Call Out Culture in the Age of COVID-19. This piece was introduced to me by my sister, so thank you for that. Um, But it really, I don't know, it, it like traces the current moment and our heightened feelings of loss and fear and anxiety and rage to the systemic oppressions built in by supremacy and um, and, and ties that into this uh, creation of cancel culture. Um, and it kind of points out ways where we can be better consumers by calling out um, when it's necessary to call out and, and being careful and being more thoughtful about different ways of engaging companies whenever you do see something that's wrong.
1: Yeah, I um, I love that point. Thanks for, for bringing that up. And that just sort of reminded me, I think even in my own brain, I'm like, I am so stuck in 2020. Like, I don't think about how, what happened in the past. I like, I don't know. I am just so like, this moment is so stressful and there's so much going on <laughs> that, um, like, this is all I'm thinking about. One thing that what you just said kind of reminded me of is you know, there are some, there are some industries out there who have had very serious problems in their supply webs for a very long time. Mining is definitely one of those. Mm. But I, I think that because of this history, because of these certain industries, there are mechanisms that are effective. And like, there's things that we don't worry about as much anymore, right? Like, yeah. Uh, not that mining is like not a safe job, but mm-hmm. it's it's a lot safer than it used to be because of
0: all of the pressure
1: that was put on it.
0: Sarah, I love that you are able to see the positives and to <laughs> highlight them. And um, I feel like talking to you always gives me hope that the world isn't just completely broken and crashing and burning.
1: I do though. I I am hopeful, and <laughs> and I would just say, yeah. to kind of like to throw this out there, and and this isn't to say that like this is an excuse for companies not per, like performing perfectly or whatever. But yeah. companies that have more money can do better.
0: Yeah. Just
1: when you for think sure. about what that means. So I mean, I always talk about mining, but because there's like a lot of money in mining,
0: like, mm. mining
1: companies can address the. Risks in their supply chain, and pay their employees more, pay miners more, have you know better safety equipment. They can provide more money for problems that might come up with like Mm. communities. Like if they hurt a community through like pollution or whatever. Like I think that's a really important thing to just sort of think about. Like when you're looking at smaller businesses, it doesn't mean that the risks aren't there or that they shouldn't be looking at their problems or responding well, but. Understanding kind of what a company is capable of, and also that means like you can hold them to a higher standard, right? Like yes. <laughs> cough Amazon, what we talked about last week. Um, <laughs> at this point, that is a company with more money, and so when they get pressure for how they're paying their employees, they can do something about it, and they should be held accountable for it. Um, I think that's just sort of a piece to think about, like what's possible, yeah. you know, in a in a positive future kind of
0: scenario. <laughs> And that's such a good point. Industries with a lot of money, whether it be mining or oil and gas or, you know, whatever it is, they have the means to invest really in making conditions better within the system. On the flip side, there are industries like agriculture, which is, short. Sure, it's profitable for people who are at the very top of the chain, but at what cost? Even with heavy subsidies, it's this industry that has so many problems, whether it's environmental or whether it's human rights based. And what this pandemic has shown us is just how brittle the economy is and how brittle supply chains are, where there's a tendency to treat workers as capital, the easiest place for people to cut costs when your margins are already so low, rather than human beings
1: That just sort of reminded me of, to tie this back to kind of our earlier conversations, a lot of these kind of labels, at least if they are, if they seem to be environmentally focused, I'll I'll say that, they often don't even have much consideration for the social impact, whether that's labor, impact to local communities. Um, They're really focused on the environmental side. And so there's There's just these gaps in our ability as consumers to understand what's in our supply chain and even in the mechanisms that are supposed to be transparency for those supply webs to consumers, they have these gaps. And I think it just sort of builds on itself. And we're people who understand this and it's whenever something kind of pops up for um, like a, you know, quote, supply chain issue for a company I'm not really surprised because it's so hard for them to know where everything's coming from, right? And I think that that, again, like, goes back to what you were saying about cancel culture. It's not to say that it's an excuse that people, you know, shouldn't know about these things, but, like, it is so complicated to, you know, make those perfectly ethical decisions, whatever that even means, because it is such a web for so many companies, Okay, so to slightly change the tone, what are some things that we as consumers can do today when we are trying to kind of understand the risks that are within the supply web of the things that we consume <laughs> and how can we make some like better decisions? Ooh. I know.
0: I think sometimes we kind of separate our lives as consumers from ourselves as a constituent capable of pushing for policy change. So enter the Obama administration. During that time, there were a series of executive orders for uh, human rights compliance in the supply chains of federal contractors. Now the US government spends about 500 billion dollars in goods on goods and services every year. So they started leveraging that government purchasing power to strengthen protections at a large scale and it was amazing, right? But one of the first executive orders that were undone when President Trump came into office were these protections for human rights compliance and supply chains, which, right, like it doesn't seem like a lot. But when you think about it, They it's rolling back this big impact that the government was able to have with their spending dollars, which is huge. And I think as consumers being more sort of attuned to things that and not letting um, legislators and executives do things and flip things in um, because they think that constituents and voters that we don't, uh, that we're not paying attention, like, let's prove them wrong. Yeah, I
1: I love that you brought that up. I think that 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 just that piece about how much money the government spends, one, very few (laughs) people know that number. And like, you don't think about (laughs) all of the different industries that government spending touches. So I love that. I think that my my two thoughts that I had about this were one just like be skeptical of products that claim to be like super sustainable. It doesn't mean none of them are. It just means like be skeptical. Like if this is something that's <laughs> really important to you, then like you can look into it and companies that have really short supply chains, like they'll tell you about it because that's, that's their thing, right? Like they're, you know, I go back to coffee, like coffee is a great example. Like there are coffee roasters here in the U S who, um, buy directly from farmers or farm groups in usually Latin America, but all over the world, um, and have like relationships like with those farmers and farm groups. And they will tell you that on their website and they'll be very clear, you know, like a hundred percent of our, Coffee beans come from these farms or whatever, Um, and the other thing is like shop local, right? Whether that means literally just like your grocery store or or local producers of stuff, like that's again back to a conversation we had in the first episode. That's not accessible for everybody, but if it is, that is one way that you can like shorten or start to untangle the supply web um,
0: connected to your consumption. I love that you sort of gave me permission <laughs> to continue <laughs> being skeptical, and also your suggestion to shop local. You know, I think we talked about this last week, and I think that we'll continue to highlight just the importance of um, investing in local economies and um, and shortening supply chains in that way, so that we don't have these crazy things like indigenous communities who are not able to access the fresh food that they grow on their own lands because they don't have the means of preserving them and whatnot and so most of the the goods that are grown are they're trucked out to all of these different facilities throughout the country and months later it makes its way back and it's much less healthy than before, right? And it's much, the prices are jacked up, and it all it took is this crazy, complex supply web to do that. And so I, I just, yeah, I don't think we can highlight enough just the importance of transitioning into something that's more localized for, for all communities.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. I think that that's you know, the most that we as consumers can do is be educated about stuff. And I mean, we're like barely scratching the surface on this topic, let alone of all the topics we're going to discuss, um, throughout this podcast. And so, you know, it's okay as a consumer to be more concerned with one of these things than the other, but doing something small, being engaged, starting to understand this, um, like it does make an impact. Like if you can be a market for products that are produced better, that have really transparent supply chains, then that's great. Like you are providing that market. Um, and so that's just a little encouragement to like, instead of thinking about it as like, I can't consume anything or, um, everything is, is complicated, which we will continue to say it all is. And like,
0: everything (laughs) is problematic.
1: Um, but just say like, what can, what like positive impact can my dollars make, right? Like I'm going to consume this anyways. And I'm, you know, might even be willing to pay a premium for some of this stuff. Like what's a way that I can use those dollars to make a positive impact?
0: Yes. I love that positive note. And on that note, (laughs) thank you for listening to Effing Ethical and for building this community with us. Please send us a note, let us know how we're doing or if you have any questions you'd like us to tackle, visit us at songandsara.com, S-O-N-G-A-N-D-S-A-R-A.com, or send us an email at hello at songandsara.com. And of course, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts so more wonderful people can find us.